All right. If you have the Bible, I'll ask you to open it up to Psalm chapter 14. We can continue our Psalm series. And if you don't have a Bible with you, but you'd like to follow along with us, we're on page 453. If you look at the uh, Bibles under the chairs, the black Bibles there, it'll be page 453. We're in Psalm 14, continuing the series that we've called Collide. Emotion meets truth in the Psalms. And what we're trying to emphasize is the pattern that we see of bringing our reality, our honesty before God, wrestling with God in prayer, in worship, whether that be in your private devotional time, just you and God, or that's corporate worship like we've enjoyed today together, or even just in smaller groups with people. We have this pattern we see in the Psalms of crying out to God, being real with God, speaking back His truth to our own hearts and to Him, and that's what we'll see in the Psalms and continue to kind of peel back different layers of of what that looks like from different directions. I'd really encourage you to read the other Psalms. Now we're starting to skip through the Psalms. We've got a year to do Psalms. We're going to do about 42 Psalms out of 150. So I hope maybe some other year we can do the other 108 Psalms or catch that some other time. But I just encourage you to read the other ones as we start to skip through here. Uh, We were in 8 last week and 14 this week. This week we're calling it Collide with God. The reality that God is, that God exists. We can't deny God. We're, We're tempted to deny Him. We're tempted to throw off that he's there or deny that he can see us, but he's real. He's real, and that's what we see in Psalm 14. So we'll read this together. It says at the beginning, to the choir master of David. So this is another Psalm of David. Most of them in the first section of the Psalms are of David. He says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There's none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There's none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat at my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us and ask God to teach us today. God, we thank you for your word and we ask that you would teach us as we've read their hard things here. I pray for open minds. God, there are some here who have real doubts and we pray that you would give them a heart of openness. We pray that for ourselves as well. Those of us that believe. We pray that you would continue to open our hearts to you, that we would continue to listen, that we wouldn't get hard hearts, but we would be open to you and what you have to say to us. We pray that you would uh, lead us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. How many of you have seen uh, the great movie City Slickers? I can't remember if it was 80s, 90s. How many of you have seen that movie? Okay, some of you know what I'm talking about. It's this movie about city slickers, right? People from the city They go on a big trail ride like the cattle drive. They go to this dude ranch and they get to participate in a real cattle drive. And the guy that leads it is a real-life cowboy who is this scary, scary, hardened old cowboy. This crusty character that terrifies the the city slickers. And there's this one scene, it's a movie with Billy Crystal. This one scene where Billy Crystal is talking about how scary this trail boss is. He says, this guy is not normal. I'm telling you, he has crazy eyes, right? And he's telling all the other guys, like, this guy is scary. He's got crazy eyes. He's a lunatic. We are being led into the wilderness by a lunatic. 
And then there's this kind of dramatic pause, and he says, he's right behind me, isn't he? <laughs> and you've probably seen this bit done in other movies, right? Even if you haven't seen City Slickers, you've seen this bit done where you've just uh, trashed someone. You've just talked bad about someone, and then you realize that person's right there. And that's kind of the place that Psalm 14 has here in the Psalms. There's repetition of this theme later on in Psalm 53, a slight variation of this psalm. They kind of took it and redid some of the lines. But the same ideas in Psalm 53, the same ideas here in Psalm 14. Paul references this concept in Romans 1, 2, and 3. And the idea is he's standing right behind us. It's not like he can't hear what we're saying, Right? I mean, God is there and he can hear us and he can see us and he knows what we're saying. To deny him or even to talk trash about him, to belittle him, doesn't make him go away. And so Psalm 14 is kind of smashing us in the forehead with two by four here. He's real. And it's, it's foolish to deny God's reality. So again, I want to I plead with those of you that, that question whether God is real or not. Uh, I just would, would ask you to be open-minded. I just ask you to be open-minded and hear what God's Word has to say. The, the first thing that we see in verse 1 here is just we're challenged with the reality that He is. God is. God exists. God exists. When He reveals Himself to Moses right before the Exodus, before He takes His people out of bondage in the Exodus, He tells Moses, tell Pharaoh that I am sent you. Yahweh, the covenant name of God from the Old Testament. Sometimes people pronounce it Yahweh, some pronounce it Jehovah, most people would translate it as I am, or he is, the one who exists, the only self-existent one. God says, I am. God is. So verse 1 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. It's, it's foolish to deny God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They're corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Now, as modern 21st century people, we have a problem with this because we don't want to connect those dots. That verse so, so closely marries the foolishness of denying God with being abomin abominable. That's not a hard word to say. Abominable, right? Doing bad stuff. Evil, even. So Scripture presses us to consider the denial of God not as an intellectual problem, but as a heart problem. Because we know he's there. And, and pretending he's not there doesn't make him go away. But our hearts want him to not be there because we want to be God. We want to take this kingdom over. We want to push him out of the way. I want to recommend to you this great podcast. just came up from a conference that was last week on the Desiring God website. It's uh, an author, a literary guy named M.D. Wilson. He's a Christian author. And it's, the, the podcast is called Myth Wars. He talks about the competing stories, the competing myths of our world. And he talks about how the myth of, of evolution, the myth of modern science, is that not that we were created just lower than the heavenly beings and have fallen in our sin and have a heart problem, but that we were created at the bottom and have conquered and are becoming gods, right? It's a reversal of that. It's, it's still, we still both agree, both myths, both stories, both... Uh, realities, both uh, tales of, of our beginnings, both see that we're at the top of creation, right? One says we were created for something much more glorious and we've fallen because of hearts that are corrupt. The other story says we started off as sludge and we've conquered. And now we can make machines, right? You know, we've ascended, we've gone up. 
So think about which myth you believe, which story you believe, which tale you believe. And when I use the word myth, I just mean, I just mean story, right? I'm not saying one is, uh, I'm not saying Christianity is an untrue myth. It's, it's the myth that is true. And so think about what story you believe. Do you believe that God's not there in order that you can be God? Or do you submit yourself to him? Any of you ever had kids that hide and they think you can't see them because they can't see you? Have you ever seen that happen before? I used to love it when my kids were little and they would do this under the bed, right? They would hide or like under a pile of clean laundry or they'd hide under the sheets on the bed and they'd think you couldn't see them, right? But you saw this little hump, right? The little behind is up in the air and they're hiding under the sheets like this. And so as a parent, you know, you love to play along with them. You're like, where are you? Are you in the bathroom? Are you under the bookshelf? You know, and you're pretending you can't see them. But bad news, if there are any kids here, we, we can see you. <laughs> we know you're there. We're just playing along. And we do that with God. We act like he can't see us. We think, well, if I just plug my ears, you know, like this is the, what the intellectual elite of our day do. They just go, la, 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 I can't hear you. Right? But the scriptures say that God has clearly presented himself. He's given us evidence. Romans 1 makes it clear. Creation screams of the reality of God. Creation screams of the reality of God. God just shows us he's there. Romans 1 makes it very clear that it's not an intellectual problem. It's a heart problem. We suppress the truth. And what happens is as we suppress the truth, as our heart chooses not to believe the creator, it becomes an intellectual problem. I've read this story to you a million times. Great story by C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia. It's kind of like the how it all began story. The magician's nephew. And the magician in the story is seeing uh, the Christ character, the lion Aslan, create by singing. And he says, surely it couldn't be singing. It's just a lion. And Lewis says, the problem with making yourself uh, stupider is that we can succeed in doing that. So what happens is our heart suppresses the truth. We become stupider. And again, I just... There, y'all know my personality. I'm an amiable. I want to be everybody's best friend. So for those of you that are doubters in here, I apologize, but this is God's word. Right? This is what it says. I'm, this is not my... I'm not trying to be offensive. I'm just saying God says that if you deny that he exists, you're denying a reality that you know is true, and you're suppressing the truth. You're suppressing the truth. You're covering your face and saying God's not there. We see this in Genesis where Adam and Eve hide from God. This is a cross-reference, this whole concept in, in uh, Jeremiah 5. Jeremiah 5.12 says it this way. They denied the Lord, saying, He is nothing. No evil shall come to us. Neither sword nor famine shall we see. And so there, the Israelites, God's people, were denying that God existed so they could do whatever they wanted to. So they didn't have to be accountable to Him. So I just want to plead with you. Are you, are you doing that? I have a picture here of a little kid hiding under the sheets. We'll make it cute, right? We'll, we'll go back to the, let's, let's be friends. Are you being cute? Are you trying to cover yourself? Are you trying to pretend he's not there? I, just, I want you to know he, he's there. He can see you. He can see the hump in the sheets. He knows you're there. He can see you. He, says, he sees everything we do. God exists. We can't make him go away by pretending he's not there. So, application for that, first of all, is just to repent. For those of you that say you don't believe for intellectual reasons, and for those of us that say we believe, both of us, we have to repent. Because I honestly don't every, I don't live every moment, I don't live every day as if He is, as if He exists. Only when I'm trusting Him do I live that way. 
Because not only does he exist, but he's gracious and he's good. As I trust him, I, I proclaim that reality to the world. When I live by faith, when I trust him, I'm saying, God, you are. God is. That's the name he revealed himself to Moses. I am. I am is there. The Lord. Every time in the Old Testament you see the Lord, all capital letters, L-O-R-D, that's how most modern translators translate that, Yahweh, that, that name that the Jews wouldn't even pronounce because it was so holy to them. That's the name I am. The one who will be, the one who is. God is. The next thing that we see in verses 2 and 3 is that God sees. And so, these, of course, these, these points overlap. God is, God sees. He, we can't make him go away by hiding us. He's still there, and he sees us. He knows exactly what's going on. Only he can diagnose our problem. Look at verse 2 and 3. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. He already said there aren't any. But it's making it clear. Okay, he's diagnosing, he's investigating, he's watching, he's looking. They've all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. I said this already in Romans chapter 3. It turns the tables on religious people and says not even the religious people are good. So don't, don't be fooled, guys. It's not like there are the liberal people that are wild and rebellious, and then there's the conservative people that have white picket fences and are nice and mow their lawn, and they're good, and God's okay with them. It says, no, there's none. There's none who are righteous. Paul starts off in Romans 1 talking about the, the horrible sin of their culture, and he says, yeah, it's horrible. Talked about sexual immorality and all the crazy places that culture goes, the things that many of us are bothered by when we look at our culture, and then it turns in chapter 2 and chapter 3 and says that the religious people have the same problem. It's a heart problem. Paul quotes this text and quotes many others and says to the religious people, none are righteous. None are. And so this doctrine is often referred to as total depravity. Have you all ever heard this term before, total depravity? Um, when I was in seminary, we had a football team and we named it total depravity. We thought that was kind of like the, the Raiders kind of name, you know, like we would beat the tough guys. Um, they just kind of looked like nerdy seminary students. You know? Total depravity. But what it, uh, what it means, I'm sorry, that was really off topic. Um, what it means is not that we're as bad as we could be. It means that we're bad at the core. Do you see the difference? So R.C. Sproul would define it as radical depravity, root depravity. Um, there's a problem with the root. That's how Jesus talked about it, right? A good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. It's, it's a root issue. James picks up that theme as well. It's kind of a common New Testament theme. There's a problem down deep, right? So, so I'm not as bad as Hitler. I'm just not. But at the heart, me and Hitler both have the same issue. We both want to be God. We both want to steal, kill, and destroy to get what we can get to make ourselves God. I just, thankfully, you know, had a nicer mom or whatever. And so she, you know, helped keep me a little more on track. But at the root, we have the same issue. I threw that out to my mom's here today. At the, at the root, at the heart, we have the same issue. So it's that heart issue, depravity. Where we're not as bad as we could be, but we're bad at the heart. We need, we need a transplant. We need a new heart, right? You think of Ezekiel 36. It says, I'm going to take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I want you to be tender-hearted. So when I appeal to you that don't believe, I'm not appealing to evidences. I'm appealing to your heart. I'm saying, be open-minded. I dare you to consider that God exists. I dare you to open your heart. Be soft-hearted towards this concept, towards this reality of the God 
who is. I have a picture here of a lab test because in our culture, we tend to trust science more than anything. What's a, a really kind of weird irony I've been noticing lately is I've been reading up on the concept of the reliability of the scriptures is that what happens is there are some evangelicals that start off believing that the scriptures are inerrant. And what happens is because really they believe that science is inerrant, they begin to question that the scriptures are inerrant. So it's this really strange irony where we say, well, I'm postmodern and I don't really believe that things are that simple, you know, right and wrong. So I doubt inerrancy. I still believe Jesus. And they're kind of like waffling back and forth, right? Um, But at the same time, they're affirming inerrancy. They're just affirming it in science. And don't get me wrong, I love science and I'm, I'm thankful for science, but I see it as a gift given to us to steward by God. It's just data that we interpret, we observe, we can, you know, we can work hard and do it well, or we can do it badly, but it's not a philosophy. What happens is we trust it in our culture more than anything else. It is the religion of our culture. It is the high priesthood of our culture. And so what I want you to recognize here is that God, not not the scientists in a lab diagnoses the problem, right? Like he's looking on the microscope because we're that small and he's saying, I'm looking down and there are no humans that are healthy. They've all got this virus. They're all infected. He's the great scientist and he's the one that diagnoses the problem. He sees that we're corrupt. Look at verse 3. It says, they've all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. Again, we know, you know, you would say, well, some of us do nice things. Just the other day, you know, my neighbor let me borrow some sugar. Right. It's, it's talking about standing before God, right? None of us are actually just fully all the way through. None of us are completely righteous. None of us love people freely and completely as we were designed to. The only times we do is by God supernaturally changing our heart, by the spirit blowing in and motivating us to do something because of the motivation of God being gracious to us. And then that pushes through, and we love other people. And we're like, wow, what happened? I just loved that person unconditionally. You know, that was crazy. So it's this supernatural thing that happens in our life. Paul makes that clear in Galatians, where he goes back and forth, back and forth, between spirit and flesh, spirit and law, spirit and flesh. And you see how he does that? He says, living by the law is living by the flesh. We can't do it on our own. Whether you're a law keeper, or you're a wild, romantic person that just fulfills your own flesh, either one, you're living by your flesh. And you can't do it on your own, you have to live by the Spirit, by what God does through Jesus. Only His work motivates us. And that's what God is diagnosing here through King David in this psalm, the same thing that Paul says in Romans, the same thing that Paul says in Galatians, that we're corrupt, that we can't do it on our own. This word means rotten. It means rotten. And sadly, what happens is we we often think, well, well, that person stinks more than I do, so I don't really smell that bad. You ever, you ever, you ever think that way? I mean, you wouldn't say that loud, I guess, would you? Um, you know, like, if there's, if there's a really bad stink, you won't notice your own stink, right? Uh, my wife, you, you would look at me and you would think, I'll just turn sideways. You would think I would have a really powerful sense of smell, right? But my wife is much more powerful than mine. She can, you know, we'll be out for a walk together, having a nice conversation. She's like, ooh, did you smell that? I'm like... No? What? You know, what is it? Very, very sensitive. And God, God is very sensitive. Like, we might not think we smell that bad, but he smells, he smells the funk. He, he smells the rot. And no matter how much Axe body spray we spray on it, it's still there. Right? 
And it doesn't matter that we smell better than our neighbor. It doesn't matter that we smell better than our neighbor. It's still there, and we need God's outside help to fix us. So, so my application question for you on, on this idea is this. What's your diagnosis of your problem? This is the biblical diagnosis. The biblical diagnosis is that we're corrupt, that we're not actually righteous. We might occasionally do good things, but we need an alien righteousness. We need Jesus to cleanse us. We need Jesus' perfect sacrifice for us. The whole sacrificial system, all the priestly duties, that all showed this, right? We're dirty, we need to be clean. We're sinners, we're guilty, we need a sacrifice to take away our guilt. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. That's the biblical story. My question for you is, what's your diagnosis? God's diagnosis is we're corrupt at the heart. It may not be Hitler, but you've got the same issues down deep. And my question for you is, what's your diagnosis? Is your diagnosis, well, I haven't been given a fair shot. My kids would just listen to me, I'd be better, right? If I just had a better spouse, everything would be okay. Or if I had a spouse, everything would be okay. If I had more money in the bank, if I had more education, right? That's one that we like a lot, education. We think education will fix everything. What's your diagnosis? The scriptures diagnose that our problem is that we lack a righteousness of our own. We need an alien righteousness. And so Christian people are not a people that gather saying, we've got our own righteousness we're people that gather saying, we've got a gifted righteousness. Jesus gave it to us. We don't have it on our own. The last thing I want us to see is that God acts. He's the God that moves. He doesn't just diagnose us. He doesn't just go, you're rotten. See you later. I'm done. Right? But he moves into our world. He acts. And this is especially important as we talk about this theme of the Psalms being our emotions wrestling with God in our situations. Sometimes we feel like he's not acting, right? Sometimes we're deep down in the filth and we've been mistreated. We've been abused. We're a victim of other people's evil and injustice. And we feel like God doesn't see. But the scripture reminds us that God sees and God acts. So I encourage you to be patient. Continue to call out to God. Continue to honestly tell him, God, the scripture says you're just. Are you just? Do you see this? God, the scripture says you're merciful. Are you merciful? Do you see this? And call on him to act in accordance with his character. Wrestle with him about it. Don't just walk away. Because the scripture says he doesn't just walk away from our corruption. Look at verse 4. God acts. Verse 4. Have they no knowledge all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? So this is God's continuing disgust. They just eat up my people like eating bread casually. There they are in great terror. For God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. So he starts off with just, again, continuing this disgust. Look at what people are doing. And now he turns it and we start to see a picture of there are two kinds of people, right? So now he's established we're all corrupt, but now we see there are a people that he set aside for himself. He's got his people, those who submit themselves to him. And I have a picture here of a lady laughing and eating bread because I feel like uh, what this is, is this is a picture of just casually gobbling something up. Any of you ever been to a restaurant where you, uh, they pass out hot bread and you butter it up, right? You ever had that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's good, right? I'm making you hungry right now. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, macaroni grill, they pour the oil, right? And I like to pour a bunch of salt in there and pepper. It's so good. And, and that's kind of the picture here. He's like, you evildoers, just, you just eat up people like you're gobbling up bread. You, you use people. And in this context in the Middle East, a lot of what he's talking about that you'll see in the Psalms is how the rich oppress the poor. 
Sometimes that's how we use people. Sometimes we use people economically. We take advantage of people economically, right? We don't care about their situation. We just want to get ahead. That's a common theme in the Old Testament. But God says, my people shouldn't do that. They shouldn't take advantage of others economically. Sometimes we do it relationally, emotionally. We're just using other people to get ahead emotionally, make ourselves feel better. God says that's evil, and that's based on our corruption. We don't have a righteousness of our own, so we eat up other people. Pull that hole in our heart. God says he sees and he acts. And he says this about those that eat up my people and don't call on the Lord. He says there they are in great terror in verse 5. For God is with the generation of the righteous. He's with the righteous. There are people whom God is with, whom God is for. We see that played out in Romans. So we're where Paul quotes this psalm in Romans, it says, none are righteous, but God gives a righteousness that's alien through Jesus. Here, this is all being compressed. And David's saying, there, there are a people whom God is with. They have an alien righteousness. God adopts them. God makes them his own by his grace, not because they have a righteousness of their own, but God's with them. God's on their side. He's going to fight for you. It says this in verse 6, you would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Those who are being taken advantage of. God is on their side. I think this is an important theme. Here, I believe, in context, he's talking about God's with the poor, and he's talking about my people, the righteous, those who I'm covenantally bonded to, right? So here I think he's specifically talking about my people who love me, who call on my name, as opposed to the people there in verse 4 who don't call on my name. Right? There are people that call on my name, and I'm with them. They're the righteous. They're the ones I've given righteousness to, and I'm with them, and they are... Uh, they take their refuge in me, and they are often poor because they're oppressed and they're picked on by the world system. But I also want to s- just state a warning here that consistently throughout Scripture, it says that God is with the poor in general, right? God has a tender heart for the poor. God has a tender heart for the orphan. God has a tender heart for the widow. And we should be that kind of people. We should live that way. We should have a tenderness for those who are weak. As we saw last week in Psalm 8, God declares his praise through the weak things of the world, through babies, through infants. Here he says, through the poor. The Lord is his refuge. So I have two applications here. If, if you're taking advantage of other people, there's a warning here. I mean, it's basically repent or be crushed. Know, know that it'll work for a while and you'll get ahead, but eventually you'll be crushed. God is a God of justice. God is a God of justice. It says he's with the poor. He's with the righteous. There they are in great terror. And then also, if you feel like you're being taken advantage of, I want to encourage you that God sees and God acts. He's not going to just leave you there. Continue to call out to Him. Continue to cry out to Him. Pray to Him. Ask Him to use you. And then live that out in your relationships with others. Be that kind of person who cares for those who are weak, who stands up for those that can't stand up for themselves. And as you do that, then you image, like we saw last week in Psalm 8, you image the dominion that God has given us to have. We are to be those kind of people in the world. With whatever authority, whatever sphere we have, we are to stand up for those that can't stand up for themselves, for themselves. He concludes with verse 7. And he says, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Here we see very clearly that he's looking forward in kind of a prophetic way here. Right? Because 
uh, at just a day-to-day basis, King David had already seen this happen. Right? God had already somewhat restored the fortunes of Israel. God was ruling through King David in this golden age. And so we believe this, this is one of those prophetic places in Scripture where David is looking forward to a greater fulfillment. See that when we look at the promises that uh, God makes to David that I'm going to establish your kingdom forever, David knows it's not going to be in his lifetime. It's this future reign. This great king is coming. And we know that great king is Jesus. We see that full fruition coming through Jesus. He's the great king of Israel. And so uh, Zion will reign. There will be salvation, restoration coming through Zion for God's people. We see this theme picked up in the New Testament in Romans 9 and in 1 Peter 2, 6 and in Romans 11. Where it talks about salvation coming through Zion. People are questioning Paul, like, Paul, what's the deal? Why does God seem to forget his people? And Paul says, hold on, there's still more to come. There's still more to come. Jesus is that king of Zion, and he will restore the fortunes of his people. There is a future to come. God's going to do great things and show his salvation for the whole world coming through this weird little people, Jews. And we get to be a part of that. Even though we're not Jews, we come from different tribes and different tongues, God is using us and using them together, ultimately through Jesus. Not just the perfect Israelite, but the perfect human. So we're united to him. As we wrap up, I want you to think about that image that we started with of the person being right behind you. You see that, like I said, in a lot of movies, you said a lot of TV shows, someone's talking trash about somebody, and then they're like, he's right behind me, isn't he? We see that especially in uh, like crime dramas where this bad guy you know, is just confessing all their evil doing to the person they're about to kill and it's at the end of the movie and you think they're not going to be rescued and then the detective is right there and hears the whole confession. Right? Have you ever seen that version of it as well? You see this, this guilty verdict play out right before you. And as I said, Psalm 14 kind of has that role in, in the book of Psalms. It's the role of God is there. And he sees you and he knows what you've done. But there's another side to that as well. We saw this uh, picture in the song, the last song we were singing together, this idea of love and justice coming together. That's what we see in the gospel. Justice says we are guilty, all of us, even those of us that are religious and those of us that are rebellious. We're all guilty before God, but God gives mercy through Jesus. Hebrews 2 says he's the forerunner. He's not just the God of justice standing behind us, looking over our shoulder. He's the one that went before us. In Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 12, is this word archegos, which is translated founder, but it's also translated sometimes forerunner, trailblazer. He's the one that goes before this theme of him being the first fruits of the resurrection. By faith in him, we don't have to just stand there guilty. God looking over our shoulder. By faith in Jesus going before us, we have mercy. We have life in him. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for the grace that you give us in Jesus. We thank you that you offer us not only justice, but mercy. And so, through Christ, taking our sin on the cross and giving us his righteousness from the outside, you renew our hearts. You give us the opportunity to live in a new way, to walk with you, offer justice and grace to those around us. Help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.